we've got Jeff Townge on What the Funk. Jeff, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Good to be here. Appreciate it. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year to you. I think this is, yeah, this is the first podcast that I've recorded in 2024. So you're going to kick off a great um, series of guests. And this is actually kind of a special one for me, not going to lie. It's very rare that I have somebody who's dialing in from Maine. You're in Maine, right? Correct. Yep. A New Englander, you know, I'm from New Hampshire. We don't need to get into the big rivalries between New Hampshire and Maine, but how we got connected is kind of fun. Uh, so I, my listeners probably know this. I grew up in Plymouth, New Hampshire, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere for people that don't know that a couple hours North of Boston, a few hours South of the Canadian border. Um, and in high school, when I was a freshman, the senior class, my freshman year was just, was awesome. My sister was actually in that class, but there were a lot of athletes in particular who were really awesome leaders and have developed great careers. And one of those people was Justin Boynton, JB. Um, Justin, I probably hadn't seen him in, I probably haven't seen him, I should say, in over 20 years. But he listens to my podcast. He sees what I do on LinkedIn. We've kind of gone back and forth a little bit. Um, awesome dude. He reached out to me randomly one day and said, hey, you're in oil and gas. I listen to your stuff. There's somebody that you got to know. My buddy JT, Jeff Townge. Uh, talk to him. He might be a good guest for your podcast and realized after our one conversation, not only are you a great guest for the podcast, but you're pretty much knee deep in the oil and gas industry, which yeah. I don't find a lot of people um, in New England that are. So really excited to have you on today, Jeff. I figure I'll just start it off with, who are you, Jeff? Who's Jeff Towns? Let's go back to the beginning. I think you're uh, maybe a New York kid, something like that. I think you went to West Point. Give me the whole story. Yeah. And kind of Got you to where you're at today at uh, Townsend Associates. Yeah. Um, first shout out to Justin Boynton. I actually just hired him today as our bookkeeper for Townsend nice. Associates. We'd been uh, trading emails for a couple of months and we finally brought him on 2024. He's going to be our bookkeeper for, for the M&A practice that we have. But and I was wow. his neighbor for 10 years in Sanford, Maine, and uh, he was a great neighbor and he's been a, a good friend uh, since I met him. But no, born and raised in Portland, Maine. Um, okay. so been, been in Maine, my entire life, uh, went to West Point in New York, uh, after I graduated high school. Thank you. And, uh, did four years at the Academy, graduated in 2003 and then went straight to Fort Hood, Texas, uh, where I was a field artillery officer for six years in the army. And then after the army moved the family, I had two young kids at the time straight back to Maine. So I've basically been a, a Mainer my whole life other than the six years in the service. Did uh, two tours to Iraq, 2006 and 2008. Wow. Just, uh, just north of Baghdad, Camp Taji. Uh, 2006 was one of the worst years. And then 2008 was actually one of the better years um, where things started to quiet down, at least from a operation standpoint. So I got to see the bookends. Um, and there was some improvement, at least while, while I was there. So, mm. But uh, the Army was a great experience. It just wasn't uh, ever my long-term plan. The plan was always to get the family back to Maine. Um, my parents, my brothers and sisters, you know, everybody is here in Southern Maine. So that was, uh, where we wanted to raise the family. And then I, I, 2009 got out of the service and it was February, 2009. The economy had just collapsed. The housing yeah. market was upside down, no <laughs> hiring, but fortunately, uh, you know, West Point degree does go a long way in opening doors. Um, got some solid interviews, but 
I'd, I randomly got connected with a CEO of a small exploration, exploration, ex, E&P company, exploration, exploration. Can we production. just say E&P, exploration and production. Yeah. Too many yeah. Uh, syllables. So I got, he was a CEO of a small E&P and he had just moved the company's headquarters to, to Portland, Maine, because that's where he was from as well. Of course. <clears throat> Why wouldn't anybody move their oil and gas company to Portland, Maine? It's kind of nice. He was, uh, he, they, there was a press release in the local newspaper that said this company is moving to Portland, Maine. Um, I was in Iraq at the time. My dad actually reached out to him, said, hey, my son's coming back. He's looking for a job. Would you like to meet him? Wow. We had, uh, had a lunch meeting and he really just took me under his wing. He hired me. Um, I was uh, the manager of commercial operations, but basically it was him and I, very small company, you know, maybe 50 people. We had a uh, oil field in uh, Montana in the Bakken Shale play. Wow. We had gas fields in Australia um, where we were trying to actually do some offshore methanol projects. And for four years, he, he kind of showed me the global uh, oil and gas industry, and I fell in love with it. We were doing exploration and production, but um, there was a lot of kind of development work, um, doing some creative stuff with um, different infrastructure projects. And... I kind of at that point decided that oil and gas was going to be my home. There's a lot of uh, similarities between the military and the oil and gas community. I mean, a lot of literally a lot of veterans, but just the the discipline, the high risk environment in which we operate, um, you know, the scale at, at which we function, you know, globally and regionally. So it's been a really good home to me, and uh, I've been able to navigate a career, keep the family in Maine mostly spend my time on planes in Houston and Denver and places I need to go. But it's been really good to me. Uh, I love this story. Um, There's a lot that I'm going to dive into here, but I want to go all the way back to, to high school, right? So you're from the Portland, Maine, the the Portland area, and you decided to go to West Point. Um, Awesome school, obviously. Um, I considered that route, right? Like maybe it would be the Coast Guard. Maybe it would be Annapolis, West Point. There was sort of some pull. I feel like New England is really patriotic in general. Mm-hmm. Go Pats. That's a whole yeah. other long conversation. Yeah. It's been a crazy week with, with yeah. all that. End of, end, end of an era. Yeah. End of an era. Start of a new one. We'll, we'll Hopefully. see where it all goes. But I, I, I had a hard time focusing on work yesterday. I'll be honest. Like, <laughs> I, I was like, I got to I got to Felt like a loss, like a yeah. real loss. You know, I'm yeah. 44 years old and Belichick's been the coach there for what, 24 years. So more than half my life um, and just the unprecedented success. Um, But truly it's, it's probably, you know, goes back to the revolution and the Boston tea party, right. And, and everything there, but new England is, is super patriotic, takes a lot of pride in, in country. And there was, there was that pull for me to possibly look at going to one of the academies. So what was it for you? Um, where you decided, you know, you're a main kid. A lot of people from New England, at least from from, decide to go to small liberal arts schools or the big state sure. schools. Some people, of course, go directly into the military. Um, what what about West Point drew you there? Yeah, I really didn't have a strong connection to the military. I mean, my grandfather was in World War II, like most people's grandfathers. Yeah, mine too. So I heard this heard the stories growing up, and you know, was enamored by it. But <clears throat> I really didn't know what I was going to do. My junior year in high school. Um, there was a cadet from West Point that was coming to the high school to talk to you know prospects. My guidance counselor pulled me out of history class and said, "Hey, there's a cadet here. I think you should talk to him." I literally turned to my best friend. And I said, "What's West Point?" You know, I have no. I've never <laughs> even heard of it. And he's like, "I think it's a military school." I was like, "All right, I'll, I'll go check it out." I listened to him. 
Um, sounded interesting. I literally didn't really know what he was talking about. Went ho- home, told mom and dad. I think dad was quietly very excited. Mom was uh, vocally very nervous. Um, but I just kind of started going through the process and then obviously realized that it was a very prestigious academy. Um, military service was something I was you know, interested in, but n- didn't know much about. And I just went through the process. You know, you have to get a congressional nomination and obviously right. you have to have all of the, the resume to, to be a candidate. And, you know, I'm, I'm really not that smart of a guy. Like, I, you know, the, the Ivy Leagues were not on my list. Um, <laughs> but I, I was well-rounded, you know, captain of the football team, class student body president, you know, all of the clubs and associations. So I was at least demonstrating leadership capabilities, you know, yeah. in high school, which is what they're looking for. So I got accepted early. And uh, that was the only school I applied to. I, I got accepted early enough where I didn't have to apply to anything else. I just locked in and, and that, you know, it fit my personality. I'm kind of a all or nothing kind of guy, you know, yeah. either all in or all out. So once I made that commitment, you know, I was all in and uh, I hated West Point. It was not good for me. Uh, <laughs> I was nice. I'm very anti-authoritarian, uh, entrepreneurial, you know, like to cut my own path. And that's not what the military wants you to do. Um, and so I made my things harder for me than they should have been at West mm. Point. Um, but once I got in the army, the army treated you like an adult and a professional. And, they, and basically, if you did your do- job and you did it well, you got some freedoms to navigate. And I really enjoyed that. So, you know, you're 21 years old, leading a platoon of 30 guys and gals um, in a foreign country doing crazy stuff. I mean, that that was um, you know, war is terrible, but you know, the leadership experience that you pull from that is just unparalleled. So I look back on my services, you know, very fondly. It was a tough 10 years, uh, it's tough on families. Um, but you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't go any other direction at this point. Wow. So take me through and not to just rehash all of your, your, uh, military days, but, but take me through a little bit like, you know, what was, what was it like? being at West Point. I mean, you said you didn't love it. And I think that was like part of my concern too with going, I just wanted the traditional college experience. Like that's what I was going for. I wanted to sleep in, skip class, be in a fraternity, right? Chase girls, play intramural sports, like all that stuff. And, and I just, I'd heard enough stories of people who went to the academies that, you know, it was, maybe I just didn't want that level of discipline at, at that age. But was it like, was it like what traditional college is like? where you're going to class or like, are you getting up at five o'clock every day and like running laps around the campus and like doing basic training? Like, what does it, what does it look like? What's a week in the life of a, of a cadet? It's very regimented. Um, Every minute is accounted for. It gets Mm. easier as you get, you know, you know, in the years, Um, your freshman year is, is intentionally designed to be like hell. And, and that's how they weed folks out. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very uh, regimented. You wake up at the same time. Everybody eats breakfast at the same time. You go off wow. to classes. Uh, you have to do extracurriculars. Um, there's a bedtime. I mean, it's, there, there's, it's not a traditional college experience. You get more freedoms when you get older. But um, my uh, aversion was that I, I, I felt like I was very disciplined and am very disciplined. I still wake up at 4 a.m. I make my wow. beds out of habit. Um, I've always been that way. I just didn't need someone yelling at me uh, <laughs> to motivate me to do that. I was like, look, uh, tell me what you want to do. Tell me to go run 10 miles. I'll go run it. Tell me to get an A on my, my science test. I'll, I'll do it. I just don't need um, that extra layer of motivation, which came in the form of 
juniors and seniors screaming at you. And then, so that just kind of drew out the, um, you know, the, the stubbornness in me. And, and, uh, I, I decided to butt heads with the system as opposed to just complying with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and then, you know, a lot of folks that is, it is stressful. You, you're, you're out there, your friends from high school are out enjoying a typical college experience. Right. In your freshman year at West Point, you're not allowed to talk outside of your bedroom and your classroom. Like you just don't talk when you're walking to class. Like you, you can't, like there's no, no talking, like just little silly things like that, that are designed to see how well you can maintain your bearing under stressful situations. So, you know, and I was like, well, does that mean that you're going to be a good leader if you can, you know, stay quiet? I don't know. You know, it was just a lot of yeah. things that I nitpicked on. Like I'm just immediately my rebellious side. And I'm sure you have some of that too. It's just like, why? You start yeah. asking like, why dude? Yeah. Like aren't social skills important? Was it mostly dudes? Was it like 90% guys? Um, I think it was at, while I was there, it was 80, 20. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, and, um, and you know, look, I, I, I still say this today. I mean, I, I've met some of the most amazing men and women at that Academy. I mean, yeah. I was not one of them, but, uh, <laughs> my, my roommate, um, who's, uh, doing amazing things, um, at a fortune 500 company right now, it was just an, the stud that you would think of. Right. I mean, captain of the lacrosse team straight A's. I mean, just an all around, well-rounded guy, um, extreme, extremely smart, athletic. Th- those, there were some beasts and savages there that, you know, it was just nice being, being around those folks and, and, and the, in the military as well. Yeah, I, I could see that. I, I've got a neighbor, uh, Michael Uperio. He's a couple of years younger than me. He, he went to West Point. Oh, I was his classmate. With Michael Uperio? Yeah. Yeah. He was all three. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Maybe. Well, you know, there, that'd be amazing if it's true. Um, he is uh, awesome and still super disciplined. And part of why he lives out here in Colorado is because he goes down to the Springs to be in the reserves yep. still. Um, and he's still the type of guy where it's like, all right, drop and give me 35 pushups. And even though he's like, whatever, early 40s, he can just bang those out. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, I'm still, still doing that stuff. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot from him and and he did some tours in Iraq. So yeah, I mean, it's possible you guys cross cross paths for sure. He actually might be 03. Um, funny, we could talk about that later on. Uh, so yeah, that that's... That's fascinating. So it's not like you're going out and like hitting up the local colleges and being like, you know, we're, we're at West Point and, and trying to pick up chicks. No, I mean, you, you really didn't get free weekends, um, you know, until you were a uh, high, higher class group. Um, and, uh, you know, which it, it really didn't bother me a ton. I mean, that wasn't really what I was looking for anyways. Um, and, uh, you know, I think once you got comfortable with the rigor of it, um, it was like anything else, you know. Um, but by the time I got into the service, into the army, it, it really changed a lot. You know, it was just more of a professional environment and, uh, and, and loved the guys that I served with. Fortunately, had a lot of my classmates in the, the unit yeah. that I deployed with, which was really nice too. So, I mean, so, that's, uh, you, you, you might lose on the college experience. You, you, you definitely gain on, on the camaraderie and, and, you know, the, the experience of, you know, like they say, being in the trenches with guys that you and girls you really respect. So. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change for that at, at all. Yeah. I mean, you, you have plenty of time to fuck around the rest of your life if you choose yeah. to. 
Yeah. Um, and I mean, I went to Brandeis. It was like a very um, academically rigorous school. So it's not like I went to, you know, Michigan State or something like that, where you can just go out, do, do whatever you want, and right. skip class all right. the time. Like you get weeded out at a school like that, too. So I learned a lot, um, certainly being at a challenging academic uh, institution. But it's always good to sort of hear somebody talk about those days. So, so you finish up, right? You graduate in, in 03. Are you required then to do service? Like, what does it look like when you've now graduated? You've done your four years at West Point. Can you just go into the working world? Can you go to no, law yeah, school, you, grad school, or you have to serve? What's it like? You've got a minimum five-year um, active duty requirement. Um, so everybody gets shipped off to the second lieutenant to, to whatever your officer basic course is, whether it's artillery or infantry. You do that for six months, and then you get your first duty station. Um, and that's where you kind of spend the bulk of your first five years. Uh, after five years, your commitment is up and, you know, you can stay um, and do 20 or, or more. Or after five years, you can get out, um, go be a civilian. You have a, a lingering um, National Guard requirement or reserve requirement for three yeah. years. So I did yeah. main National Guard for a couple of years just to, to stretch that out. Um, and actually would have stayed in the main National Guard, but they were coming up for a deployment um, in 2013. I had already done two. I had four kids at the time. I was like, I'm I'd love to do this, but I'm just not doing the deployment thing anymore. So um, you did I, I, two tours, right? At this point, you're like, I kind of want to have a career. I got a yeah. family. Like, yeah. what are we doing? That's right. Yeah. The guard was great. But um, yeah, it's just it's an enormous commitment. What's crazy. I just ran into a guy that was um, just finished his 20 years. So I'm I, I just had my 20th um, college reunion. So oh. I would have done 20 active duty years and I'm 42. When you're 25, that seems like a lifetime. When you're 42, you're like, wow, 20 years goes by pretty quick. And I would be a retired colonel at this point, which is just insane to think about. But uh, so it's all perspective, you know, it's just, uh, you know, but I, I'm, I'm super happy with the career that I, that I chose and uh, been able to, to, to work on. No, I, it's, it's really, really fascinating to me, the paths that people take. And then, uh, of course, being a main guy, but still ending up in, in oil and gas. Um, so tell me a little bit about what it's like then. So you did, were both your tours in Iraq? Yes. Yeah. So, so you did two tours in Iraq and this, this isn't a military podcast. So I'm not going to ask you to explain the whole experience of what it's like to sure. deploy, but you fit, you, you're getting to the end of your time, right? You see that, okay, the plane's going to come. They're going to send me back to the U S like, when do you start shifting your mindset to like, okay, I'm going to be a civilian and I need to get a job. Like, what is that process like for you? And then how do you go about finding a job? I, I guess your dad helped you out a little bit yep. by saying, here's a, a newspaper clipping. But like, what, what do people generally do when it's like, okay, I guess I've got to go get a job. Right. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, there are some services in the military, which I thought were, were helpful. You know, they help you write their, your resume and translate words from like, I was a platoon leader to what that would mean to, to a business owner, yeah. you know, little things like that. So that the transition, you know, you, you are set up for success when you're coming out. Um, you also have, I had about maybe four months of leave that was built up that I could, you know, basically go home, still, you know, be, basically be on payroll. So okay. I had a, a bit of a transition period, which was nice. Um, but yeah, I remember being in the uh, dining facility in Iraq with all my buddies and we're just picking each other's brains on like, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. And uh, my, like one of my friends was like, I don't, I want to, I want to make something. I want to work. I want to make a widget, but I want that widget to be exciting. That's as, as far as he got. Now he makes jet engines. Right. So like oh, you have these cool. kernels 
of ideas that you're like, and one guy's like, I'm going into finance. Like, that's it. You know, I'm going to go yeah. to Wall Street. So you, you have these kernels that you think about. Um, I, I, I wanted to do something that I thought was impactful. Um, and that, you know, interested me at the time. Uh, energy just seemed interesting because I knew that we were going to always need it. I didn't even, I, I, I didn't know what natural gas was at the time. I thought it was gasoline. Mm. Right. So, but I just knew that energy was important. Um, I had some inkling to head into commercial real estate because I like the development side of commercial real estate. I talked to a broker, a buddy of mine when I came home and he's like, the market just crashed. He's like, it'll be five years before you can build a portfolio. That's, he's like, don't waste your time. So I was like, all right, that door closed. And this energy door just kept opening, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, I think there's some fallbacks. There's a lot of um, like academy associations where they'll do um, career days. You can go yeah. interview. But I, I definitely knew I didn't want to go Fortune 500. And a lot of my friends did, and they've done very well because sure. those organizations recruit, you know, folks with discipline and can handle the bureaucracy. That was not for me. I knew that. So I started looking for small operators, small companies, something that, you know, where I could have an impact, you know, when I was inside the organization and, you know, the doors just started opening. So it was, it was a real blessing. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you said a few things there that, that interests me, I think first and foremost, and I always say this on this podcast too, like growing up in Northern New Hampshire, growing up in Southern Maine, um, people say gas, you just think about gasoline. People say oil, you think about, you get your oil changed every 3000 miles. The, right. the, idea of uh, a pump jack, right, is yeah. is something that happens somewhere else, either in the Middle East or somewhere in Texas or something like that. And it's just out of sight, out of mind, right? It yeah. just sort of gets to you. And I think that that in part clouds people's judgment in New England uh, in some ways about how they view the industry because there it just shows up for you, yeah. right? And, and your yeah. house gets to stay warm in the winter and it gets to stay cool in the summer and you get to fill your tank. But you don't really think about the industry as a whole, which obviously you and I do do now. So, so what is the general sense? And, and I get this, you know, I li I've lived in Boulder County, Colorado, a super kind of liberal bastion, I would say similar in some ways to what you get in Boston and, and outside of it. And it's almost like me telling them I'm in oil and gas starts an argument. And I'm like, yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to do that. You know what I mean? It's actually an industry that I love. I've spent 16 years in it. I've built amazing uh, business contacts and personal relationships. I've started multiple businesses. I've helped companies grow uh, on the technology side. Like I love it. So I I'm just not going to dig my heels in and get an argument. To me, it's like you said, it's something that's not going to go away. What's it like for you in Maine when you go out to Bissell Brothers or some other <laughs> fun spot in, in Portland and um, people say, what do you do? And you say, I work in oil and gas. Yeah. What's your reaction? It's not good. It, it, you know, fossil fuels is a four letter word here in, in New England and it's getting getting worse as we go. And I think you you nailed it, which is, you know, we're, we're essentially an importer of energy, right? Yeah. We have some wind and solar, but let's be real. We're importing all of our energy and we take it for granted. Um, and, I, you know, I've been to the oil patches. I've been in Houston. I know how hard the industry works to keep the lights on. Yeah. Um, and so we understand the supply chain and everything that goes into it globally. Um, but yeah, I, you know, when I started and um, intentionally gravitated towards natural gas because I could see, you know, the Marcellus shale, the, the, the cost advantages, the emissions advantages, um, the, the amount of resources that we had. I was like, well, natural gas is the future. So let me build my career in, in natural gas. And for a little while there, 
even you know the Obama administration was kind of pro natural gas as the bridge fuel. Yep. Now natural gas is no better than coal or oil. It's the root of all evil. And when you tell yeah. people that you're in, when when I proudly tell people that I'm in the natural gas industry, um, it's it's usually met with um, some opposition or hesitation, and certainly a lack of understanding. You know, my kids uh, they don't really know what I do, but they know that I'm in natural gas, and so they tell their friends and their teachers that, and they're surprised at how f- frequently they're met with opposition. Um, I said, don't worry, you know, be proud about it. You know, we're keeping the lights on, we're keeping those houses warm, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and I'd say post COVID 2000, really it's, it's the energy policy in New England has gotten even worse. Um, it's getting out of control and, um, going to lead to bigger problems than they, than they think they're solving. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and, you know, to me, like I look at somebody like Elizabeth Warren, probably viewed as a four letter word within the oil and gas industry. And I know Elizabeth Warren is very smart. Right. Like you don't get to be, you know, whatever, a Harvard law professor or whatever it is that she does and sort of get to the level of, of achievement and accomplishment that she's had without understanding on a global scale how important energy is. But if you look at sort of what she puts out there playing to her base, she knows that she's kind of full of shit with some of the yeah. stuff that she says in terms of her view and in, in terms of oil and natural gas, like we got to get rid of it. And I think that's part of the problem politically the divide becomes bigger. And for whatever reason, energy being viewed as something that everybody needs, right? It's sort of like, well, we now need to start deciding exactly how and what that energy should be. I like to view it as, um, you know, the, the energy transition, right? The terminology has sort of been around now for a few years. I just don't buy that. I look at it as energy addition, yeah. right? If we stop drilling for oil and natural gas today, um, the world would completely shut down. Um, and I've had people come on this podcast and talk about what it's like still in some places in in China or in even in, in Russia where there's donkeys that are pulling coal to yeah. people's houses. And that's actually what creates energy for them. So I think we're a little bit spoiled here in the United States and that we do take for granted. I think New England and California are like the, the greatest representations of that with, well, it just sort of shows up and yeah. I can now decide how green or clean I want it to be. Um which is just a little bit mind-boggling for for me to see, um, you know. So you've worked for an operator, right? You started that around 2009, similar to around the same time frame that that I started and really started to enjoy the, the oil and gas industry. 2000, late 2007 into 2008 was really good. Yeah, um, oil prices were were very high. Natural natural gas was over ten bucks. Consistently, the Marcellus Shale, like you said, was blowing up. There are all these new plays. The Bakken was really becoming a thing. The rediscovery, in some ways, of the Permian Basin. um, You know, initial production rates going through the roof. New drilling techniques with horizontal drilling. Uh, It was it was kind of a a a boom time. I feel like. So you start working for an operator. Tell me a little bit about what happened after that. How long did you work for this international Portland, Maine based operator, and then where did you take it from there? Yeah, we worked. I worked with them for about four years. Um, we were chasing a huge project in Australia to to buy an offshore um, gas fields and turn it into a methanol project. It was um, mm. high CO two content offshore fields, like seven TCF of gas. I mean, it was a, a huge project. Um, and at the time, China and still is China was blending methanol into their gasoline stream, like we blend ethanol. 
Yeah. Um, and methanol is a, a, a brilliant product. I mean, it's it's very stable, low cost, easy to produce, um, easy to store, ship, manufacture. So it was a great idea. Um, we just didn't. We were we were literally like a hundred million dollar capex, uh, uh, you know, um, market uh, price Nasdaq stock. It, we were just a tiny yeah. little thing trying to swing with the big boys, and um, and so the project kind of fell apart. Um, the CEO got let go by the board of directors, and and so I kind of transitioned at that point. But I I, I had fallen in love. I, I had a broad understanding of how the energy markets worked. And then I started to, to get into some opportunities locally here in New England um, because the oil price and the gas price split in 2013. Yeah. Uh, we started uh, compressing natural gas off the pipeline and transporting it to remote locations. So for instance, Plymouth State was running um, their boiler room on compressed natural gas. Nice. There's no pipeline anywhere near them, but we could compress it uh, downstate, truck it up in these new you know, carbon fiber uh, trailers, get them off of heavy oil, get them onto natural gas, and uh, and save them cost. So, I spent a good ten years in the CNG, and we were using LNG in the same capacity. Um, it's kind of a virtual pipeline, move the molecule either in compressed or liquid form to remote locations where they need it for power generation or for um, steam and heat, that kind of thing. So, um, and then in doing that, I bought up against the midstream guys. Um, yeah. All the utilities. So utilities. Well, New England has been using LNG as a winter fuel to shave the peak since the 1960s. Um, so there's actually an enormous amount of LNG knowledge here in New England, and I've been able to kind of tap into that um, after I got off the, you know, working with the operator. Well, that's that's really really cool. I, I didn't know that about Plymouth State. Like that yeah. to me, that that's fun information. My dad was a professor at Plymouth State, so his office was being warmed by sounds like compressed, compressed LNG that you guys were helping bring up there. So fantastic. Um, Townsend Associates, tell me a little bit about when you started there, what you do in particular and kind of what your forward looking plan is for this company. Yeah. So four years ago, I I was working for a, a Houston based LNG company and they went through a merger and I just said, you know what, this is an opportunity. I want to go back to development and be out on my own. So four years ago, I went out on my own um, with the intent of, of developing LNG infrastructure here in New England. So we need more LNG storage and production um, to keep the natural gas system uh, reliable here in New England. And I have been doing that for the last four years um, in partnership with some pretty big midstream um, operators. Over that same four-year period of time, just because I was on my own, wanted to have some diversity of income, uh, my dad has always been in uh, in M and A, and he's always okay. had his own practice helping companies sell their businesses. He's been focused on manufacturing predominantly, and uh, five years ago, he did a an oil and propane home heat company uh, through a friend of a friend. He sold the business, and when I went out on my own, he said, "Hey." I, I think there's a lot of consolidation going on here in the oil and propane, home heat, uh, big operators buying the little guys, the mom and pop family owned operations. And I think we could go after this. So for the last four years, I I joined him, you know, kind of on a part time basis to chase down uh, and help family owned oil and propane companies sell their businesses. And it's gone very well. And uh, the natural gas development has also gone very well. But I realized I was probably just doing too many things. I had too many plates spinning at once. Yeah. yeah. And uh, 
I said, you know, if I, if I were to pick something to go all in on, I'd like to go all in on my family name. Um, you know, go in partners with my dad, uh, and build this thing into a boutique, you know, small family focused mergers and acquisitions advisory firm. So we actually just kicked that off January, 2024, you know, formally. Um, that's why we hired Justin as our bookkeeper. And, uh, he's still, my dad's still focused on manufacturing. I'm currently focused on oil, propane and HVAC because all the electrification that's happening through, you know, state driven policy, the HVAC market is really taken off. Um, and over time where I want to take this is keep it small and boutique. Uh, we like the relationship driven aspects of what we do. We like knowing the owners and helping them with their succession plan, their exit strategy, monetizing the retirement plan. Um, and I'd like to add leveraging my natural gas, you know, midstream oil field services experience and, 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 and expand into some of those markets as well. It'll take some time, but eventually I think Towns Associates will have a, an energy practice, which focuses on conventional energy companies in the supply chain, and then a manufacturing and maybe a healthcare practice that other folks, other uh, senior partners will run. But gives me an opportunity to flex my my energy experience. Um, so when I talk to an oil and propane company, um, I know the challenges that they're faced with, the the regulations, the lack of manpower, the lack of training, the fact that they get called four letter words because they're <laughs> ruining the environment. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I like that. And then I also like just the nature of the work that we do. You know, we, we um, you know, the Maine is a perfect example. There's a lot of multimillionaires in the woods of Maine that you would never know existed. You know, totally, they totally, they own the oil and propane company. They own a bunch of real estate. They own the local convenience store. Um, and they just work extremely hard, 80 hours a week till they're 70 plus years old. And then they finally decide, you know what? My, my kids aren't going to take over the business and it's right. time for me to retire. And so we get to help them um, with that process. And uh, it's very rewarding. And, um, and it, for me, it's really about management and, and relationships. You know, it's, we're just managing a process. It's their business and we want the best for them. Um, but it does take a lot of uh, navigating the due diligence and the contracting and, and just keeping the project and the, uh, and the deal on, on track. So it's, it's been great. So how do you, thank you for sharing all that. Um, how do you find these companies? Like, are you proactively reaching out to these people that live in the woods of Maine that own the propane companies and local gas stations and, and that don't have a succession plan? Like how, how, do, how does business happen for you? Are you proactively going out to these people? Is it localized? Are you primarily focused on New England companies? Are you are you going into to Texas and Colorado and and New Mexico and and Oklahoma? Like, what does that look like? How do you get your business? Yeah, so um, a couple of ways. Um, so for my for example, my dad who has a manufacturing practice, which actually has a specialty in lighting, like commercial lighting that you see in hospitals and hotels. Sure. He's he's got a partnership with with actually a, a headhunting firm um, uh, out in the Southwest. They struck up a relationship. That guy has placed all the executives at the major lighting companies. So he knows who all the decision makers are. And he knows once they're ready to sell, um, then he brings my dad in to help manage the process. So they've got a a nice symbiotic relationship there. That's cool. Um, So a lot of that's, you know, coming in through the industry, you know, that lead generation. For the oil and propane, I had some local contracts, contacts just based on the network of folks that I've worked with over the last 15 years. 
but we did traditional marketing, right? We got engaged in associations. There's some pretty good home heat associations here in New England. We started advertising, showing up to their conferences, doing t- typical networking. Um, a lot of our deals do come in through referrals, which is probably the best way for them to come in. Um, you know, it's a it's a warm lead. They say, hey, I just heard so-and-so is getting ready to retire and they're thinking about selling. You know, you you really should talk to Jeff and Jeff. And, um, you know, I, I, I applaud my dad. He's got a really good business acumen, but also just a really good touch. He's very, you know, we're Mainers, like very low key, uh, easy to work with. Like our first meeting is usually just lunch and, hey, tell me about your business. Like, what have you done? What are your goals? Where are you headed? And then eventually once they decide, yeah, I think I'm ready to sell, then it's like, all right, well, here's what we can do for you. Here's how we can help. Um, over time, yeah, I want to expand into other markets. New England's pretty fertile for us right now. Yeah. Um, but if we were to make a jump into like oil field services or equipment rental in, in, in Texas, we'd have to find some strategic partners down there to, to get in, get into. Good thing about New England is New Englanders like working with New Englanders. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so we're leveraging that as much as we can, but, uh, eventually, you know, I think for us, it's, it's about finding the right niche, you know, so. Uh, oil and propane is doing really well here in New England. You know, I think I can take that to the Midwest with some other, you know, manpower and, and time and energy because um, you, you know that niche. Um, and uh, and we don't we don't take everything on. Uh, we try to stay in our lane that we have some value add um, to contribute. Um, so it's uh, but yeah, it's typical. You know, it's like being a small business owner. You know how it is. Like you got to be a jack of all trades. Know how to keep your books, how to do marketing, <laughs> how to design a website, <laughs> how to run a podcast. The, a the amount of, yeah, the amount of um, things that I've learned about being uh, a small business owner or from being a small business owner over the past three years has been pretty awesome. Uh, I think like taxes is probably one of the biggest ones. I didn't really understand much about that at all. Um, yeah. And now I have like a pretty good idea to the point where I make recommendations like you should probably look into forming an S corp, right? Based yeah. on how your company structured and people are like, what are you an accountant? I'm like, no, I've just run my own business for three years. Man. That's right. That's you right. start to pick these things up and, and realize pretty quickly um, that there's, there's a lot to learn. I think operationally, that's an area I'm always looking to improve because we all have our specialties. For me, it's, it's sales, right? So yep. I'm going to be good at that. But then there's also the uh, account management, the, finances, the tracking of, of expenses, the payroll. Yeah. Um, so many different things that I hadn't even thought of that just sort of happen when you're an employee and then you have to make happen when you're running your own company. Um, it's cool what you're doing. Um, certainly, is there like a specific deal size that you guys target? Are these like, I mean, you mentioned sort of individuals. Are these like one to five million, five to 50 million? Like, is there, are there deals that are too big or too small for you to go after? Yeah, that's a really good question. We we like uh, to stay in the five to twenty million dollar range revenue. Yeah. Um, you know, one to five million dollar EBITDA range. That's our preference. When we start, if we're breaking into a new niche, we'll take on smaller projects just to to gain credibility. So we did a couple of really small oil and propane deals just to build the resume and get the yeah. exposure. Um, but five to twenty, I think, is where is is where there's a lot of value, right? We bring value by finding the right buyers, hopefully bidding up the price and managing the process. Um, and and monetizing as much of that owner's um, equity as possible, right? And uh, and all deal sizes require the same amount of work. So if it's a million dollar deal, right? It's six months and twenty hours a week uh, versus you know the same amount of effort for a twenty million dollar deal. So that's our preference. 
And then I think rule of thumb, um, you know, we're small boutique advisors. Investment bankers don't really get involved under 20 million. Some will even say under 50. Too small. Yeah. Yeah. So like we know that's an area that uh, is underserved and, um, you know, that's where we want to spend our time. You know, a lot of a lot of what we try to, to accomplish is through relationships, right? So, you know, we, you know, knowing the CPA or the lawyer of the business owner, um, yeah. you know, th- those types of things to develop that trust. But yeah, I think five to 20 is, um, and it's also extremely active. I mean, if you're a business owner and you've yeah. grown your business to to $10 million, you know that there's there's real value there. And um, depending on the size, you can be looked at as a platform, like a private equity group will then actually start to look at you as like, oh, I could build, you know, buy you as a platform and then bolt onto you. Right. Um, so those are the most attractive for everybody, the buyer, the seller for us. Yeah. So really a lot of relationships on both ways that you build out, right? The, the, certainly the, the company owner, right? But then also the hands that are touching that company from the accounting side, the legal side, and then the financial side, like somebody has to buy these companies, That's right? right? And for them, it's a, it becomes accretive very quickly if they buy five, $10 million companies, $50 million creates a whole different uh, multiple, right? right. Than whatever yep. they paid for each of those individual $10 million companies. Um, See, I've learned to think about finance despite knowing nothing about it before I yeah. ran my own company. But you know, it, it, that that all fundamentally um, adds so up. I always and makes sense. say I, uh, I I did get my MBA through the University of Oklahoma, which was awesome. It was actually a nice. specialty in energy, so they had an energy practice. So everybody in my class was a geologist, a reservoir engineer, somebody from the oil and gas industry. So it was just really cool. Um, but I've learned more about business in the last four years working with my dad selling businesses than I did in my entire MBA. You know, it's like it's hands on yeah. once you run your own income statement and look at everybody else's income statement for a living, you realize, oh, wow, that's cool what they did. I see this. Yeah, that's a good that's a good uh, strategy there. So, so uh, did, I, I think hands-on is always the best way to learn. It is. It is. And unfortunately, it's like your failures become um, very real, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they impact your, your life itself um, yeah. versus sort of like, uh, you know, a, a project that you do in business school. Did you live in Oklahoma for a while or was this all remote? Um, I did. It was remote. Yeah. Yeah. Did, I did, did live you go in Oklahoma. Down there at all? What's that? Did you go down there at all? Was I did. Like, yeah. Okay. My, my, my connection to Oklahoma, it was a good program, but I, um, I did six months before I went to Fort Hood, Texas because I was artillery and that's where the home of the artillery school is, is, is in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So that was my first spot out of West Point and I actually loved Oklahoma. It was just my vibe. Like it it's quiet. Nobody's out there. Beautiful plains, Buffalo, bison walking around. It, it was cool. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to go back, you know, uh, to to University of Oklahoma, it was it was a good fit. It, it's interesting to hear you say that. I've always felt this real kinship with Oklahoma and Oklahomans too. Yeah, um, Texas to me feels like big bigger business, right? It's almost like more commercial. It can be very transactional. You've got all the chains down there. It's it's yep. just big. Um, Oklahoma, in a lot of ways, it, you know, I just feel comfortable every time yeah. I go there. Yeah. Um, and I'm maybe it's like the New England in me. Um, the, the cities are smaller. The airports are smaller. Everything's quick. Everybody's willing to take a meeting. Um, yeah. It feels like that more people are willing to put their cards on the table. So it's it's fun for me to hear that you've sort of had similar experiences and, and that kinship with uh, the Sooner State as well. Yeah. yeah it was hard for me uh, transitioning into the business because I'm just extremely candid and open. And, uh, you know, if we're going to have a meeting, like I want to get straight to the bottom line as quickly as yeah, possible. Me too. Me too. And, um, and, and Mainers, I, you know, once you get comfortable with them, that's kind of how we, it's like, let's not waste our time. Let's just be frank with each other. 
I've always enjoyed that, but it doesn't always export to other places. You know, there's this caginess in other regions where it's like, I don't trust you. I'm not going to tell you, yeah. I show you my cards. I'm like, let's just, we're, let's, let's, let's do it. <laughs> there's nothing to yeah. hide here. Nah, I, I, I love that. I was, I was able to get back home, uh, shortly, uh, around Christmas and went up to New Hampshire and it, it tugs on your heartstrings to be back there a little bit, but honestly, like what keeps me away is, is the weather. Like, especially yeah. this time of year, it looks super sunny and nice actually. Where I know, I know. Right now. Yeah. We, the winter just has not shown up this year, which, you know, we're skiers. So if you're a skier and you're in the natural gas industry, you really want a, a, a strong cold winter. It yeah. just hasn't shown, <laughs> hasn't shown up for anybody, but I guess for most residents, that's a good thing. Yeah. It's just, you know, at least in, in Plymouth, like it was gray a lot. And then you come out here, like you can see, I mean, Colorado's just it, a lot of the things that you can do in New England, you can do here just more in yeah. the year and it's everything sort of like bigger and more robust. Um, where can people find you uh, on, you know, social media or your company? Like where can people reach out to you and, and uh, talk to you about business, learn more about you, get you on their podcast, whatever makes sense. Yeah. How do they find yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, townassociates.com. Um, that's my dad and I's uh, M&A practice and all the information you need on what we do and who we are is, is on that. Um, getting a little bit more active on LinkedIn. So hit me up on LinkedIn and, and DM me. Um, you know, I, I am growing in my interest in being a fossil fuel and natural gas advocate because mm-hmm. we need some sanity in the conversation for, for with folks that understands what energy infrastructure will be required to make this energy transition or energy addition work. Um, so I'm actually doing a lot of speaking uh, at conferences. I'm going out in New Orleans uh, to an LNG summit next week. Oh, nice. um, involved in a lot of the gas utility conferences here in New England. So I'm always trying to be out and about and, and speaking about the value of the energy industry um, and uh, what we need to do from a policy perspective to be able to move forward. But uh, when it comes to M&A, yeah, I mean, if you're a business owner and you're interested in just talking and, and learning more about um, succession planning, exit strategies and monetizing your your um, your ownership, you know, always happy to talk. Uh, that's awesome. Well, Jeff, this has been really fun for me, and I guess a bit of a of a plug. The Digital Wildcatters events are awesome. Um, I personally like their Fuse event. I don't know. Have you had a chance to go to any of the Digital Wildcatters no. events yet? Yeah, definitely, definitely something to to jot down. So, Digital yeah. Wildcatters they produce this podcast. I'm good friends with Jake and Colin and and others, but Jake and Colin are the founders, and they've been running the company now for a few years. They do these energy tech nights, sort of regionally, where it's basically like a um, like a pitch competition, primarily for um, oil and gas tech startups. Yeah, they run a whole different series of podcasts, but they've been raising money a little bit more lately for some technology platforms, but also to do uh, to continue to put on some of these bigger events. So they put on like a really cool energy tech show um, called Fuse that I went down to Houston for around Halloween earlier this year, and it's one of the few shows that was like a true like energy tech show. Like, yes, it's mostly oil and gas centric because it's Houston. But it's fun to talk about companies that are in solar, right? That are yeah. in wind, um, that are in Bitcoin mining, that are yeah. doing the the real diversification of their energy, and they just put on great events and great shows. So obviously, want to plug them. I'm going to Nape yeah. in a couple of weeks. I don't know okay. if I make it down for the Nape conference in Houston. That's a huge one as well. Yeah, I usually do, but we'll make it this year. Well. Yeah. I do look forward to meeting you in person. This is super fun. Um, you got a fascinating background. I wish you all the best with uh, business. It's got to be fun to work with your pops here in, yeah. uh, in 2024. But but uh, have a lobster roll for me next time you have an opportunity. Go go hit up some uh, 
you know, Bissell Brothers have a hazy for me. And uh, very good. Best of luck yeah. this year. Appreciate it. Really, thanks for your time. My pleasure.